You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Our chapel frame uh, this morning, up into the semester, is hands of service. It's godly wisdom that overflows into acts of service and Christian witness to neighbor, to orphan, to widow, and sojourner. Our Christian witness becomes visible through lives of charity, expressing love to all in the name of Christ, courageously sharing the good news of Jesus. It comes both through words and through acts of mercy. And so this morning, uh, as Dr. Brown shares, uh, we'll be centered around our hands being shaped uh, to be hands of service. You uh, don't need an introduction for the 18th president of Asbury, for Dr. Kevin Brown. He cares so deeply about you, about the education that you've been called into at Asbury. Dr. Brown's leadership and his love for you as students, it flows uh, from his desire for your faith to be formed and fueled during your days at Asbury. So as we start a semester, uh, let's give thanks for Dr. Brown. Happy 2024, welcome back. I am so ex- let's try again. <laughs> Happy 2024. Let's pray and close uh, on that note. Wow. Thank you. Hey, I want to welcome uh, all of you. I am so happy that you're here. Asbury is Asbury when students are here. And I want to welcome our new students. I'm so excited for you to be woven into this tapestry of lovely people in this community and looking forward to getting to know you in the days ahead. Hey, this is the, the fifth time that I have had the privilege of, of opening chapel when we come back in January for the spring semester. And it's, it's, uh, I've learned it's a chapel where people seem to be in a pretty good mood, right? They just came off the holidays, they're rested, the, the sun is just shining through our wonderful windows. Like, it's a good mood. And so I, I, my instinct is, let me tell a few jokes, maybe make fun of my baldness. I tend to get some mileage out of that. Uh, here, here are some good thoughts. Good luck. Have a good semester. Here are some things to kind of adorn your week, that kind of thing. So that's my instinct. I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, I'm going to go against my instinct. This will be a little more serious. But... I just want to share with you that this, this is just a growing conviction, what I'm sharing with you today, that I've had really over the last year. And so I think this is an appropriate time to, to share some of these things with you. So let me just open by saying that throughout Scripture, we see a, a common description of very serious and committed, godly men and women as being serious. They are serious. And I won't trot out the examples here, but one example is in 1 Peter. These are Christians who are scattered throughout Asia, and they're under the, uh, the, the, 
They're trying to exist under Nero's leadership. And Peter says, be serious. Uh, Be serious to them. In other words, be alert, be sober-minded, exercise sound judgment, be committed. And I believe as, as followers of Christ, we should always be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And by the way, let me just say, there's no like if clause on that, right? Paul doesn't say, but if this happens, you don't need to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. No, there's no if. Uh, If you're a follower of Christ, you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. But in addition to that, we see a call, again, for committed Christians to be serious. I was at a conference years ago when I was first introduced to the story of Sophie Scholl. Scholl was a student at the University of Munich in 1943. She was arrested, she was tried, and she was executed for distributing anti-Nazi leaflets. She was your age. She was 21 years old. She studied biology and she studied philosophy. Scholl and several others criticized German leadership and Nazi values in the name of their Christian faith. And hours before her death, she wrote this to her boyfriend, her fiance, I shall cling to the rope God has thrown me in Christ Jesus, even if my numb hands can no longer feel it. I would actually strongly encourage you, if you're not familiar, to associate yourself, uh, to, to learn about Sophie Scholl, about the White Rose Movement. But I mention her here for two reasons. The first reason is she was serious. This is the, the picture, if it comes up. Um, this is the picture I remember seeing at this, this conference. And I remember just looking at her eyes. I was looking at her eyes. She was serious. I was just taken with the expression on her face. The author, Susanna Black Roberts, writes the following about Shoal and her friends who risked their lives in the name of their faith. The friends talked for hours. They talked into the night. She and her brother Hans shared an apartment, and sometimes after they turned the lights out, they couldn't stop talking. They wrote letters to each other and to their parents and their friends and sent each other books and treats. They read Novalis and Aristotle and Dostoyevsky and Aquinas and Augustine and Nicholas Berdyaev and Younger and Nietzsche and Thomas Mann and Gothi. And the group of friends met up for discussion groups about what they'd read, about current politics, the friends debated Aquinas' teaching on the right of resistance to tyranny. And they began, Black writes, more and more fumblingly to pray. The Shoals were introduced to John Henry Newman. Sophie, ever eager to pass along what she loved, sent a couple of volumes of his sermons to her fiancé. The late-night conversations of the Shoals and their friends began focusing often on Newman's ideas about the development of authority and conscience. She was serious. They were a serious group of people. It's a long quote, but it is worth sharing this with you. Listen to this. She says, the real damage is done by those millions who want to survive, the honest men 
who just want to be left in peace, those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves, those with no sides and no causes, those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness, those who don't like to make waves or enemies, those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature. Those who live small, mate small, die small. It's the reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the bogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion, she writes, because they die too. Those people, people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues, and a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. She was serious. The second reason I mentioned Shoal to you this morning and her story is like so many other godly men and women whose character was shaped by a crisis that they were responding to, she haunts me. I look at people like that throughout history and I just think, where would I have stood? It's easy to look back and, oh, that's terrible. I never would have done that. Where would I have stood? Would I have been serious? In about a month, we are going to be celebrating one year since last February's outpouring. And I have made a point not to try to scour the world and every podcast or article or things like that. Uh, we do have an archivist who's done that and done that well. Over a thousand articles have been written about that. But I have noticed that a variety of questions get raised about the aftermath of the outpouring. These questions include, what's the future influence or the long-term consequences of the outpouring? When, if ever, is it rightly described as a revival and not an outpouring? What lies ahead for the church? Now, to be clear, I think those are good questions. I think those are questions worthy of an answer. But over this last year, my mind has become increasingly occupied with a different set of questions. And they're questions that relate to you. Let me name some of them. What if your generation will rise to challenge the casual Christianity that has marked our religious landscape and characterized our de-churching movement that has occurred over the last 25 years? What if Gen Z is more poised to be serious, the kind of seriousness that marked biblical figures and godly men and women over the last 2,000 years? What if a remnant will emerge out of this cohort whose steadfast commitment will radically restore a non-domesticated, exilic, and fundamentally demanding spirit of historical Christianity. Faith in Jesus is everything or it's nothing. And what if, what if Gen Z is even ready to die? What if you want pictures of serious and devoted saints like Sophie Scholl and Simone Weil and Bonhoeffer, and Oscar Romero, and Martin Luther King Jr., instead of prosperity gospel theology, celebrity culture churches, 
and undemanding religion, a non-habit-forming faith, or pictures of a therapeutic God who only exists to affirm our preferences. You see, I think it's my conviction that your generation is poised for something different. It is the conviction of people that I work with every day that your generation is poised for something different. I think you want something beyond cynicism. I think you're tired of being tired. Barna's David Kinnaman has studied and written about what he calls resilient disciples in Gen Z. And among other things, he says there is a seriousness to committed Gen Z teens and young adults dissatisfied with the institutional status quo. Kinnaman says this cohort is more willing to be challenged than what they have actually been challenged by within the church. In a viral article in The Atlantic last fall describing the exodus of once regular churchgoers, the author Jake Meter says that churches asking too much of their members, that's not the problem. He said, rather, they're not asking enough. Around that time, I remember hearing a story of two missionaries in Honduras with World Gospel Mission. He told the story of when they had first moved there. They were young, around your age. Three men broke into the apartment they lived in, held them at gunpoint, tied them up, robbed them of everything that they had. Luckily, they lived. Afterwards, another missionary sent an email uh, and reached out, and the email was Psalm 27. Uh, which if you know that, it's about seeking the face of the Lord in moments of doubt. Uh, But then this missionary called this couple, and they said, well, now you know whether or not you are called. What happened is tragic, but are you serious? Are you in? And then that couple said, oh, we're in. We're in. He said, we've never doubted since. They're serious. Contrary to popular belief, research by 10 by 10 in Barna showed that Gen Z teens and young adults actually list spiritual growth as a top priority. And you are a generation that is done, praise the Lord, with the do as I say, not as I do theology. You want to see consistency between what is preached and what is lived. In general, you reject hollow words and hypocrisy, and you want to see values embodied in action. Marianne Evans, who famously goes by George Eliot, said, ideas are poor ghosts until they become incarnate. I love this quote by N.T. Wright. He says, practice without theory is blind, but theory without practice is dumb. The data is clear. When it comes to bearing witness, Gen Z prioritizes behavior over words, actions over utterances. You don't want poor ghosts. You want the real thing. This is little surprise for a generation that values authenticity as a core value. And when I say authenticity, I don't mean being transgressive. Uh, In other words, breaking the rules and breaking barriers is authentic. I don't mean self-discovery. What I mean is being genuine and real, being sincere. Actually, in her book, Authenticity, by that title, Alice Sherwood describes this as verisimilitude, big word. 
what she calls the primary sense of authenticity. She writes, this kind of authenticity is outwardly focused, objective, evidence-based, and above all, public. In other words, you don't just hear it, you see it. It's observed. There's a great story. Um, I, I, I was involved in a um, uh, generous giving group, uh, Dr. Dan Lewis, and there was a video of Bill and Vanessa Bright and uh, Vonette Bright, uh, incredible individuals. And in this video, they were talking about how long, long ago they said they would only live on a certain amount of income. They said income was pretty low. They said anything we get above that, we'll give it away. Well, after they'd made that commitment, they went on to become rather wealthy with the ministry that he was involved in. In fact, in 1996, he won an award, the Templeton Prize, that came with a million dollars. Gave it all away. The interesting thing about this video is, if you watch this, he's wearing this really, like, outdated 70s suit with, like, massive lapels and this, <laughs> it's like, ugly paisley tie or something like that. He wasn't cool. But I turned to my wife and I said, now, our students, our students at Asbury, they'd resonate with this guy. Not because he's cool. He's not cool. He's real. He's genuine. He's serious. His values are getting lived out. The brochure matches the reality with this guy. These kinds of stories resonate. So I think, I believe, it's my conviction that you're a generation that wants to see holiness. It's another way to put it. A purified, set-apart people of God. An authentic expression of going after God. And a church that is formative and not performative. This leads to my last what-if question related to you. Your generation has been called the anxious generation, iGen, homelanders, or the connected generation. What if, in reality, you are the corrective generation from, the, from whom a remnant will arise and faithfully embody resilient, committed, costly saving faith in Jesus Christ as a corrective to impotent expressions of faith? What if your distinction was seriousness? In December, I had the opportunity to share this very message with a group of Asbury alumni, just some of the best people I know. They're amazing people. They love Asbury. They love its mission. They love you. They think about you. They pray for you. And they support this institution for you. And I was telling them some of these thoughts, and I said, you know, in most coverage, Gen Z is, is described as a highly pathologized generation. In other words, it would be easy for older generations like mine to look at you with skepticism, especially as a group that would play some kind of restorative role in the future of the church and Christian institutions. Them? We say, Gen Z, well, they're less religious than previous generations. They're leaving the church in droves. Don't you know they're more skeptical of institutions than other generations before them? They're characterized by anxiety and depression. And of course, we all know that they've been discipled by phones and social media. Them? Isn't it interesting in that very line of reasoning 
how that sounds like similar expressions that we hear in Scripture. Jesus, don't you know who's washing your feet? Don't you know whose house you're eating at? Don't you know who you're associating with at the well? She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. Fishermen, tax collectors, a centurion, the Gentiles. Them? And what does Jesus answer? Yeah, them. Christ is saying, you. Do you hear that? I do. I want to end by asking this of you. Be serious. And I just want to say, for where you have seen expressions of a church that has modeled a non-serious faith, I, I genuinely apologize. Where you've seen that from me, I apologize. It should not be that way. But I'm asking you, I'm banking on you. Our future depends on you. Be serious. Be serious about your faith. Be serious how you approach your schoolwork, what you read, how you think, your discussions, the work that you do here. It's a great quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, the, the purpose of education is to give us eternal standards by which to judge fugitive conditions. In other words, the, the purpose of education is to give us an eternal standard to judge non-eternal things. That's why you're here. Be serious about that. Be serious about what kind of friend you are. Be serious about what kind of family member you are. Be serious about what kind of community member you are. Be serious about your citizenship, what kind of citizen you are. Be serious about the legacy you'll leave. Be serious about your priorities. Invest in the things that matter. Invest in the things that are eternal. Be serious about the cost of your faith. It's everything or it's nothing. Faith is either everything or it's nothing. And finally, let your seriousness be an inspiring model unto others and a corrective to non-demanding expressions of the Christian faith. Do you remember last August? I told the story of Francis Chan. He wrote a book, Crazy Love. It was about lukewarm Christianity. And he said, I got this weird response from some people when I finished writing that book. They said, I loved your book, but the thing is, I'm a lukewarm Christian. And he said, then you didn't understand the book because there is no lukewarm Christianity. There is no lukewarm Christian. There is no casual Christianity. There is no undemanding expression of the faith. There's always a cost to following Christ. Be serious. Let me just end with a great quote. Stanley Haravas, you hear me quote him a lot. He says, I think that Christians have a conviction that God is nice. And since they think they ought to be like God, they are nice like God. And I mean, it just wears you out dealing with nice people all your life. So you know, you would just like to produce a few leaner and meaner folks that follow Jesus. That would make a difference in the world in which we find ourselves. Now, to be clear, Haravas is not critiquing kindness. That's a fruit of the Spirit. He's critiquing niceness, a shallow and superficial veneer of faith, but without any bearing on our day-to-day -day life. 
a non-habit-forming, undemanding set of beliefs that may adorn our words but do not fundamentally influence our actions. He's critiquing a non-serious faith. Our lives should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, absolutely. No if clause on that. But we should be serious. And, and look, let me just say, I like to have fun. I like to tell jokes. I like to enjoy my time. I like predictability. I don't like to stir conflict or controversy. Far from it. But let's be serious, because this is everything or it's nothing. So if I had to distill this chapel into one expression, it would be this. My prayer has been, and it will be, that a defining feature of Gen Z and where my heart is for Asbury students will be a generational corrective to passive and weak expressions of a non-serious faith. This is everything or it's nothing. And I think we have Sophie Scholes sitting in these seats right now. Will you be the generation that steps up and says, this is everything. I believe you can, and I believe you will. And our work here is not just simply to show up because we get paid to do that. People self-select into this job because they believe in that vision. They believe in you. And I believe that more than any other time in my 46 years of life, in my 11 years of higher ed. Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, I want to ask for your forgiveness. Where I have expressed, where I have modeled, where I have conveyed a non-serious faith. Lord, I pray for your forgiveness where the church has conveyed a non-serious faith. Forgive us, Lord, that we've not modeled something different for this upcoming generation. And Lord, I've been one of those same people that says, them? Father, I think I hear Christ saying, yeah, them. Holy Spirit, would you stir these students to do something we never would have imagined. And may it be characterized by their seriousness, their love for you, their genuine love for others. May there be an authentic symmetry between the values they espouse and the actions they exhibit. Because the world is taking notice. And Lord, may it honor and glorify you May it serve and edify these communities. And Lord, may it be an instantiation of a different kingdom and a different citizenship. Lord, would we be a serious people? Not because we grit our teeth and try hard, but because we're empowered by your spirit and because we're an encouragement to one another toward this end. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.